Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. How's it going? How are you doing? It's been a hard week. Yeah, it's uh, the news has been like so consistently bad that, um, you know, there's a way to to kind of like let the badness wash over you and then try to not get too sucked into it. And it certainly helps that uh, spring is finally kind of sprung here. Uh, spring comes a bit late in Quebec, mm-hmm. where I am. Um, so that's been okay. But I mean, yeah, it's hard to watch this stuff and kind of have that daily realization that, like, I'm not going anywhere for a long time. I mean, it must be really difficult for you being away from home. Yes. And but also, uh, you know, this, the distraction of school uh, makes it sometimes uh, forgettable and sometimes unbearable. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> right. Uh, but it is uh, like summer weather here now. So barbecues abound. That's how I make myself happy now. Lots of barbecuing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's fun. You know, at least I get to be in the sun, make food, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, before we get into the bad news of the week, I'm sure we have some people to thank. Yeah? Yes, we have a whole bunch of folks to thank this week because uh, there's been a lot of really great support. So thanks so much to Aaron, to Kyle, Catherine, Milan, Sean, Chloe, Jeffrey, Peggy, Ash, Beloved Makes Music, with another awesome amount of money that they're giving to us. Awesome being an awesome number, not necessarily like awesome high, awesome low, but just a great random number. What's the number? I'm curious. Oh, you'll have now. to check. Okay. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for your support. We really, really appreciate it, especially in these strange times. Yes. Thank you. And so, oh my God, there's just, there are so many things to discuss today. Um, you know, one of the things that we want to discuss Uh, is Nova Scotia. We want to discuss some of the updates that have been happening with COVID. And we realized in our kind of like discussion before turning on the mics that a lot of this has to do with cops, um, what we want to talk about today. And so, again, this is probably our 50th cop-themed episode. And (laughs) (laughs) we're not at 100 episodes yet. (laughs) So um, I'm exaggerating. But we do have quite a few cop episodes because there's just so much wrong uh, with the cops to discuss. And uh, this week, no different. So why don't we start uh, with what's happening in Nova Scotia um, and the investigation that has been ongoing from last weekend's uh, horrific uh, mass shooting. Yeah, when we talked last week, the news was only just coming out. Um, There was actually about the same time that we were recording last week was a press conference that the RCMP was holding to to brief the public and had just been a couple of hours after the shooter had been killed. And at that press conference, um, the police led with the news that a member of the RCMP had been shot and killed. And it wasn't until the question period in that conference that the police then also said, oh, yeah, 10 other people have been killed and we're still looking into more. And 
a lot of these details. Wow. Yeah. They didn't lead with that, huh? Interesting. Yeah. And, and so a lot of these details have been written and explained by the folks at the Halifax Examiner, which is a really great local news source in Halifax if you're looking for critical reporting on pretty much everything that goes on in that province. Um, so Tim Bousquet was on Shortcuts with Jesse Brown on Candleland and was talking about some of the criticisms that that he has had on how the coverage has happened. And he explained how this press conference happened. Um, and since then, Stephen Kimber has written this really um, detailed account of what we know in terms of the timeline of the of the killer's rampage, because he traveled more than 100 kilometers from Dartmouth to the north of the province and back down before he was killed. Uh, and there were 16 crime scenes. And of course, we know that there have been 20. Which just seems so impossible. It's so impossible. 16 crime scenes. It seems so impossible. Yeah, and, and, and 22 victims, um, some of who were known to him and some of who were, were random. And so this whole situation, it's been like quite a puzzle because, you know, there's certain themes that police follow up certain kinds of crime, right? Like there's there's crime that's like domestic crime. And, and did this start sounding like it was just a domestic issue? And then you have a, somebody who's randomly shooting people on the side of the road, which seems like a different kind of crime. And then you have the the the, the crime of impersonating uh, someone with the intent to commit crime, which, of course, this guy is dressed in, like, a, like an RCMP member and driving an RCMP car that he made himself. And it's very clear that, 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 that this overwhelmed uh, their, the system. It overwhelmed what exists out there for policing. And we're talking about rural Nova Scotia. So, you know, that's not like tons of policing resources. Um, but what's been very frustrating is that to get an answer as to what all this stuff has happened has been very difficult because the RCMP has been in the driver's seat of what information is coming out from the start. And that has posed quite a number of problems with what we know and what we don't know about what has happened. So I wanted to, mm-hmm. I wanted to start there um, because I think that it, it's a story that brings together a lot of what we have been talking about already with this crisis, which is that, you know, in the COVID world, the police are acting with more immunity, immunity or impunity, <laughs> Maybe I've never used those words right. They are acting with more immunity from scrutiny because scrutiny often comes at the at the ability of people to hold them account and holding people account often means being in the same room as them and actually questioning them directly. And it's just been really unbelievable uh, to see how difficult it's been to get information. And I'm watching this with the eyes of someone that watched very closely the media coverage after the Quebec City shooting. Um, which, I mean, Quebec is not Nova Scotia. Like, we have a French media world that is, like, putting all of Canada's media into one small province and then English-language media on top of that and then international media on top of that. And it's... I, I really am interested, I hope, uh, to, to, to look a little bit more into the differences of this coverage as uh, as we learn more. Well, what have you seen so far? Of the coverage that I've seen, like, uh, you know, there has been... Uh, attempts to to dig into this guy's background and there's been some good coverage from you know global had some very in-depth coverage about about other uh parts of this guy's life uh, the 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 tie-in to likely a domestic abuse is, is is now pretty much clear that's been established i would say 
and uh, Vice has been has been doing uh, what they can as well. One of the the interesting things that I found though with all the reporting was there th- there's so little of it that's mentioning how this guy was very wealthy. And, you know, it was mentioned, I guess, in an article that the Globe and Mail first published about what they knew of the shooter right after. And maybe you saw this and I didn't read past the headline, so I didn't know that they mentioned that he was wealthy within the article. But the headline was that uh, the, the Nova Scotia killer had a passion for policing. Yes, I did see that. <laughs> that was like part of their headline. <laughs> Yeah, that that he had a passion for policing, that he was voted to be most likely to be a, a RCMP, a member of the RCMP in high school or something like that. Yeah, he wrote it in his yearbook. That, that That's what he wanted to do. Yeah. Um, no, yeah, I did see that in the article, certainly. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, the the coverage is 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 kind of what you would expect that a, a place that has what, you know, one daily newspaper, a couple of online news websites, plus a couple of television channels like Global, CTV and and CBC, you know, and then CBC Radio. But that's I mean, that's not enough. Right. Like people are going to be working like like uh, as hard as they can under the weirdest conditions possible to report on this. And uh, news, uh, this was talked about on, on Shortcuts, um, that uh, the the Nova Scotia government would not allow international press to come unless they went through quarantine for 14 days. And I think that it's like there in in this in, in that example where you really do see how COVID is allowing state security forces or the state itself to justify not having to deal with pesky journalists or whatever, because obviously there'd be ways to let them cover this without like propagating the coronavirus. But instead, it's just much easier to say like, oh, no, we've got pandemic. You can't come. And I think that that's where this fits in uh, to to this discussion. I mean, imagine this was an act of quote unquote terror committed by someone who's not white. I mean, they would be reacting to this way differently. And I think oh, that yeah. there's a level of like protecting or protecting Nova Scotia from this like vulture external scrutiny as if this wasn't like the worst, biggest, most confusing crime that's you know, kind of ever happened in Canada in terms of how fast it happened and and the 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 way that the 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 murderer managed to get around the police so effectively for so long. Yeah, this is worldwide news. Um, this is uh, news that uh, journalists from everywhere should be able to access and be a part of uh, what the media uh, does sometimes quite well, uh, which is uh, being a part of holding. Um, you know, things like institutions like the RCMP accountable and to tell us uh, more about the story of uh, domestic violence. And, you know, there's there's different places that have different approaches to these things. But regardless, all of the journalists should have um, access to this. And I think, you know, especially because journalists have been doing all of these stories on COVID, you know, there are ways to let journalists in um, safely and to make sure that this story is covered and to, to hide behind um, the the specter of COVID just seems um, wildly convenient and irresponsible to me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, speaking of uh, really weird policy decisions uh, that, you know, get justified by COVID, um, 
I don't know if you've seen this report. I believe it was reported in CTV News. I haven't seen it. I don't think I've seen it elsewhere. Um, but by, by now, it's probably been reported elsewhere. But Ontario has made the decision to deliver personal health information for everyone who's had COVID to the police, firefighters, and paramedics. That seems like a weird decision. Yeah. The exact language of the story is um, the Ontario government has taken the extraordinary step to release a database to police with a list of everyone who has tested positive for COVID-19 in the province. And that information includes names, date of birth, and address for all of the patients who have uh, tested positive. Wow. And like, I don't know what the testing infrastructure looks like in Ontario. Are people signing away their right to privacy? I'm not sure. But I also don't know what the fuck that does and why they're doing it. Yeah. It just seems like uh, such a clear violation of civil liberties and certainly the Canadian, um, uh, the CCLA, the Canadian uh, Civil Liberties Association. Civil Liberties Association. <laughs> I was like, how does it all? The Canadian Civil Liberties Association is has uh, said that they uh, will be potentially taking legal action um, because there's no clear information as to why the police would need this um, and why the you know what they would be doing with that information. It makes very little sense considering like the second that you have healed from the illness, there'd be absolutely no reason. I mean, I can imagine that they would justify it by saying, well, if a paramedic arrives at your house and they know that you have COVID, they will treat you differently, which I mean, that's a whole other host of moral and ethical questions that that raises. But, you know, let's imagine that, OK, they'll they'll come in with protective gear or whatever, although they have to do that anyway for every run right now because they aren't testing everybody. And we do know that uh, people who are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic uh, can have the illness. OK, um, so then that whole argument with paramedics and fire would disappear. And so then that brings a question into police. What does this do? You know, people are really concerned that our civil liberties are, you know, they're tenuous and we always have to defend them. And there's been a mass agreement by people to give up their their liberty, full liberty to protect themselves and the people in their communities. And that's a real act of humanity that so many uh, of us, all of us really have engaged in, with the exception of the bunch of fucking pieces of garbage who are like protesting this shit, which I mean, it's just such a small number of people that they really shouldn't be considered to be more significant than a bunch of fucking loser goons. Although it looks like in the United States, it's a bit more popular. I don't know. <laughs> oh, it looks like it's a tea party thing. So yeah. I mean, you can't have a tea party with just one person. So I guess that's a pretty major part of their brand. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> uh, but um, but yeah. So then why do the police need more information? Or is it just the, the case that they're like, oh, uh, no one's paying attention to us right now. Let's just get this information. And, you know, you, we, we talked about already that we need to watch what the police do. Uh, while this crisis is going on, because without scrutiny, they will likely do things worse, right? They have they have murdered several people, at least at least five across Canada, and have injured others uh, since this has happened. 
and they're giving out tickets like it, they're fucking uh, going on fire or something like that. I don't know if, if that's probably not the saying, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so now we've got a situation where in Ontario, the police will have access to your information just because they know that you're sick. And if we don't know when that information is being destroyed, what that information is being used for, how you consent, how you withdraw your consent, that raises tons of problems. And, you know, under normal circumstances, that would be impossible because you just can't collect people's information like that. You have to be able to justify this stuff to whatever privacy regime exists within your province for why you have to have that information. And then you also have to give that that privacy office the plan of how you're going to handle it, store it, what you're going to do with it and when you will destroy it. And then if what you're proposing is an overreach you won't be able to do it but i mean the cops are like sweet let's get let's get this done let's do this yeah for no good reason yeah and like i don't i don't know if i put it this way but it has already happened they have already given this information to the police and 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 it's and it's terrible for exactly the 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 stuff that you've just been talking about they have now been asked to enforce um the the measures that you know the the government has been requesting uh all people uh living across the country take and so if the police are enforcing those measures and then now have address information of who has been sick and they also have the ability to card anyone as part of their emergency measures which was something that was announced in ontario weeks ago uh i'm i'm getting a little uh terrified about what that means uh for people um, and how they're going to be treated and stigmatized and treated differently uh, by police and potentially other first responders uh, given this crisis. And it seems, again, like we've talked about before, exactly the wrong approach. It, I, don't, I don't know what it helps. And one of the things that the Canadian Civil Liberties Association pointed out was like, even if there was uh, some uh, justifiable reason of which we can't find one, the testing in the province is so haphazard and weird that all they're getting is a random smattering of of people who who um yeah who are definitely symptomatic were at some point symptomatic um unless you know they worked at a unless they work um in healthcare and per- perhaps were uh, tested and tested po- positive when they weren't uh symptomatic but otherwise they're getting uh, a group of people who are uh, symptomatic random smattering of people who were able to get tested. It just seems very bizarre. But this whole thing is bizarre. I mean, everything about the, this crisis is so bizarre. And if you listen to like commentators and the prevailing wisdom, it's just like still we're in this logic of, I mean, we're at week fucking seven, but we're still in this logic of, oh, people are doing their best. They're doing what they can. Don't criticize too fast. I mean, that's actually kind of the same line coming out of Nova Scotia, right? Oh, the RCMP is doing what they can. They lost one of their own. Give them time. Mm-hmm. This is such a horrible time for them, too, and this kind of thing. And it's like, yeah, sure, you know, give people time, but we also don't have time. I mean, every day that passes when when you're away from a, a massive crisis or mass shooting uh, is less information that you're going to get is going to be more time for the police to figure out how they're going to spin what they did to, to, to make it sound better. I mean, that's what they do that we know that that's what the police does. And so uh, every minute that you lose to be able to scrutinize them there is time you're not necessarily going to get back. With 
criticizing how our leadership has handled the pandemic in general. It's the same message. Give them time. Doug Ford's doing his best. My God, I saw people today saying Doug Ford's like handling his lot better than I thought he was going to handle it. And it's like, what did you think he was going to do? Did people (laughs) honestly think he was going to go full Trump? Like, I mean, Jason Kenney has not been handling it well, but the guy's like fucking like mother is dying, (laughs) a.k.a. the oil industry. I mean, I don't know if his mother's actually dying, but but then Rob Ford's mother-in-law actually does have COVID. And so he has been directly touched by this as well. And so who knows what the like how the personal is playing into his newfound, enlightened kind of strongman governance stuff. But. We we absolutely need to be criticizing so much more how our, our politicians are handling this, how uh, how they're handing off responsibility so easily to police and to the military. I mean, in 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 the case of Ontario and Quebec, like the military is coming in to help these crises within long long term care, and and like a, only a fraction of them even have medical experience. So wow. it's like what. What in the fuck are they helping with? Like, are they evacuating people? Are they building fucking bridges out of these homes? You know what? It's just like, are they building mobile uh, health units? Like, no, they're not even doing that. That at least would make sense. But we're so like, anytime the state has a chance to remind us of its authority, it takes it. And now is like the time. This is the, the, the best possible imaginable solution to increase the power of the state in all these really strange and distressing ways. Yeah. And I, you know, th- the idea that y- you should take time before criticizing or give them time, it's just like, what exactly are we supposed to wait for? When is the correct time? In fact, when things are moving so quickly and so urgently around a particular situation, especially when it involves cops, especially when it involves death, especially when it involves our health, um, the time is as soon as you recognize that something could be done better or something is wildly out of fucking place. Like, I, you want them to respond immediately uh, to, to change the way that they're approaching things. I don't know what we would wait for wait to see if what we know is already bad gets worse or better <laughs> yeah. just just like by by sheer luck like i i don't know what we would be waiting for um i think that uh, critique is necessary immediately i understand that there's like the shock of a changed life and and perhaps wanting to have a feeling of, of banding together i get that sure i but i disagree <laughs> like i just think right. that the critique should happen straight from the beginning right away because there's there's going to be different approaches to uh, that people will have to these things we're seeing that you know if we're um comparing the way that different countries are dealing with uh, uh for example opening back up and the way that the police can be involved there uh i want to be a part of that discussion right from the get-go because i don't want to find out later that it is in fact uh, the police who are going to be mandating who can who can be out and who can be inside their homes uh, as we create a two-tiered society that is based on both um that is based on class race and health, you know, as another as another marker of subjugation. Yeah, there's a there's a real, I think, white sensitivity in all of this that that we always do have time as white people. Things are not actually that bad and that we 
can take up that space and take up that time and 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 not be confronted with the really difficult questions that do arise immediately following some massive crisis and and here we've got two examples actually of, of a national crisis in the in the coronavirus and this very local crisis within uh, within Nova Scotia and it's it's it just it for me it's just like imagine you don't you didn't have time like imagine it felt like you didn't have time all the time that everything within society was always a matter of life and death and instead you had all these people telling you just relax you have time you have time that 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 is so grating and is so integral it's an integral part to how white supremacy is maintained in this country and it goes down to tone policing and telling people to relax and that things aren't that bad and it's just like the only people that can say wait we need time are the people that have the privilege to to say that and i also want to make a distinction between like average people who are dealing with this in a direct way and like people whose job it is to analyze to ask questions and to be critical like if you are part of the community that is in mourning no one i like i'm not saying sandy's not saying no one is saying that that they are the ones that need to ask these questions that they are the ones that need to be forced to reckon with these huge forces or or the ones that have to uh, move as fast as possible to get these answers like when a community is in mourning, that community needs to stay in mourning to, 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 to heal itself and to do what it needs to do to get out of this horrible situation. But for those of us who are outside of these situations or for those of us whose job is to actually see through the, the fog and to write something that nails like what is actually happening, that's, what, that's, that's why people exist in society to be critical. And we've just lost so many critical voices within um within the media and being critical as a politician is even more difficult too, that I think that people do sometimes struggle with that question of, of how do you be critical in a moment of a crisis? It's like, not everyone has that job. It is not everybody's job to be critical, but we absolutely need those critical voices to have access to information, to be, to be not stonewalled by power, not stonewalled by, stonewalled by the, the RCMP or not stonewalled by, by the, the, the people within the prime minister's office when you're criticizing his decisions or trying to get more information on his decisions. And that's actually part of democracy. That's a super fucking important part of how democracy is, is supposed to work. Um, and I just want to shout out one article that I just, I thought encapsulated this really well. It was an article written by Mark Gollum for CBC News. And I mean, the, the article kind of gives not just this one side, but it leads with this one side, which just makes me like so enraged. Um, the title is Speculation About Motive in Mass Shootings Could Encourage Copycats. Some psychiatrists suggest. Wait, read that back one more time? Yeah, speculation about motive in mass shootings could encourage copycats, some psychiatrists suggest. And so it quotes a psychiatrist. He actually said, and I think that this was the original headline because I, I actually read it differently, but it's in the story, um, is that media speculation about the motive in a mass shooting typically yields no useful information is, quote, rarely helpful to society, end quote, and can potentially be harmful by encouraging copycats, some psychiatrists say. And then they go on to quote some random dude from the fucking uh, sunny upstate medical university in Syracuse. What? And it's just like, why in the fuck is the CBC running an article like that? What? Like, you have 
three hours to write an article and you're going to write that instead of literally anything else. I'm just wondering how that even like who's the producer on that? Like, how does that happen that someone gets that as an assignment in front of them and is like, okay, this this mass shooting has happened. I am going to call a psychiatrist to ask if media speculation is cool right now. Like what? (laughs) How did you get there? How how is that the place that you arrived at as the most important hard hitting question to ask? What? <laughs> well, and the the best thing is about how like the way that this psychiatrist professor kind of rationalizes his argument, and it's all in the article. It's just so wild. It's like. <sighs> He, he says, when someone who is troubled, unhappy, and mulling committing such a violent act reads about another shooter's motives, they may think, yeah, I feel that way too. That's exactly like me. And how much lavish detail do we need to dissect in terms of motive in the media about these folks? And is it good for the public? It's like, this shooter is not a, a random lone wolf guy who one day just decided to shoot all these fucking people. There were forces that created him. And those forces are, are violent misogyny, violent white supremacy, violent um, uh, wealth, obviously. He has a, a background of being a shitty guy. There's a lot of articles that are coming out about just how much of a shitty guy he was. The whole rampage started with him trying to hurt and then forcibly confine his girlfriend and then going back to the party, apparently, that they were at where he killed everybody. That's one media report. I haven't read it in multiple media reports, so forgive me if that isn't exactly what happened. But that's what's being reported. And the CBC thinks that now is a good time to be like, you know what, if we're going to try to guess what this guy's motives were, um, we actually might make someone else commit a mass shooting. I mean, give me a fucking break, CBC. That's so ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> that is so ridiculous. And also, you know, like I, it just, you know, we can we can speculate when we think it's a certain type of crime, right? If it's a certain type of, uh, of perpetrator, you know, yeah. if this person... Uh, was brown or black, I bet you that the speculation would 100% be happening with without a second afterthought and no one would ever write an article like that <laughs> whatsoever. Um, so fucking bizarre. So fucking bizarre. And predictable. <laughs> bizarre and predictable. And predictable. Yeah, yeah. As as many things are that we point out on this podcast. <laughs> we we <laughs> should weekly. call the podcast Bizarre and Predictable. Uh, there is one other bizarre maybe predictable less predictable possibly for me anyway um, (laughs) uh, thing thing that we wanted to talk about that is uh, related to uh, police or law enforcement and it that is the way in which uh, certain lawmakers are discussing opening up uh, economies again Oh, oh, yes. Yeah. And um, I, I don't know, you know, there was a couple reports uh, this week, uh, some that were that included uh, an interview with Justin Trudeau, where he said that he's not interested in this, because it's too early to discuss something like this, uh, which is still frightening language. But the but the this let me reveal da 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 is uh, opening up the economy based on a passport system where uh, people would get passes if they had the antibodies uh, uh, to, to be back out in the public. 
<laughs> it's like, wow, that is some scientific fiction. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I mean, uh, some countries have already started uh, doing something close to this. Um, you know, in China, people are being tracked on their cell phones for whether or not they have had COVID or not before entering particular um, uh, services in certain areas of China. Um, I believe I read somewhere that somewhere one of the Scandinavian countries has like a, a wristband system um, that they're using because uh, the cell phones didn't work because people were using their leaving their cell phones at home. I just, it just it feels a little apocalyptic, but also the people who would be enforcing this are, of course, the police. And if we, you know, we we take that information and we uh, overlay that information on information that we already know about um, who is being uh, most negatively affected by COVID, who is more likely to get it, who's more at risk, you know, the the essential workers who are our frontline workers, people working in grocery stores, our sanitation workers, our people who are working in long-term care facilities. Um, a lot of these people are poorer. A lot of these people are Black, Indigenous, or other people of color. And what is that going to look like when, if uh, there is a past system implemented in our society uh, that where that the police are enforcing. And don't tell me to wait to be a part of this conversation, <laughs> because let me tell you that this is a conversation we should be having far before. If it's too early, Justin, if it's too early for Justin Trudeau, it's not too early for me. Like, I want to make sure that these politicians know that that is absolutely fucking unacceptable before anybody thinks of implementing something like that uh, here. It's also wild considering how little information there is about, like, the ability to fight off this illness once you've already had it. Like, it's it's not conclusive that those antibodies are going to stop you from getting it again. And, I mean, it's also predicated on this idea that then the economy will be opened up off the backs of those folks who've had it before, who you identified. And so, like, what kind of economic apartheid shit is that? <laughs> like, yeah. But handing over policing of like this level of health information uh, based on very tenuous science uh, to the police. I mean, like, do police even have to take science? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it's yeah. It it just is another thing where we're we're giving more power to the police, and the real thing that we should be talking about is. Um, is how do we open up an economy when there's a fucking pandemic happening? And the answer is you really can't. Well, that the, okay, the, so that's the economic... ex exactly what I was going to move to next. It's like, why is it, why is it so important to open up the economy so quickly? The only reason is because you haven't effectively given the people the services that they need so they can survive without the economy being opened. Like, that is the only reason to do it. And hmm, better solution, implement the services that people need. It's just, it just seems like yeah. the better solution rather than creating a two-tiered society where the police are enforcing certain ones of us um, through a past system to be able to, to interact with the economy. That just seems, seems so ridiculous Beside, instead of stay home, no rent to be paid, uh, fucking no fees on your bank, whatever, uh, fucking... Communications, free, nationalized. Here's internet for everybody. 
go ham, interact with your family members. You know, like, <laughs> just like, yeah. here's free uh, cell phone service, like, because we know that communication is so important right now. Like, here's some free cell phone service for everybody. Like, uh, make sure that everybody gets food. It just... Make sure that everybody gets shelter. Commandeer as many hotels as you need because ain't nobody traveling right now anyway. Like, just make it work instead of um, doing something so reckless as to reopen society when we know how dangerous that could possibly be. There's no solution um, that involves, like, policing or some sort of enforcement of a two-tiered system that is going to be a real solution. That is still going to manifest in the spread uh, of this disease. I, I don't see how else, uh, how, you, how, how anybody could think um, that it won't, given the information that we know uh, that's being delivered to us every day by doctors all over the world. Well, and the, the reality is, is that it's only been seven weeks for us in Canada and the United States. That that's not a lot of time. That's it, it feels like a lot of time. It's definitely sucked, <laughs> but pandemics last longer than that. Pandem pandemics in the past have lasted year or, or, or multiple years. We're all waiting and hoping for a vaccine. Maybe the the illness is just going to disappear, which has happened before. And there is no way that things are going to look even kind of normal until there's a vaccine and until this thing doesn't actually threaten all of us. And so, you know, we can either try to semi-open our normal economy to get people back to work in some kind of way and hope that they're not going to get sick from this illness, or we actually think really hard about what a new economy has to look like to make sure that the people who are going to work are not getting sick and that we're all riding this out together. I mean, there's so many... One of the examples, I've been arguing about this, I think, with a lot of people, the, the, the question about opening schools is such a good example of this. It's like, why are we talking about opening schools? Why do I know or why have I heard more about the fact that my government in Quebec wants to open schools while we're still having 100 people a day die? I mean, like the, the, the outbreaks within long-term care are so brutal that that 100 number is going to continue to increase mm -hmm. for the next two weeks because it takes like up to two weeks at least to kill people, right? Once you finally get, this, get the illness. So people who are sick today, if they die, they will die in a couple of weeks. That will increase our, our death toll. And all we, my, my premier is talking about is, is school, 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 we're going to open school. It's like, why not talk about like... What are the safe conditions for families to open themselves up to other families or for individuals to open themselves up to individuals? Can you make your circle larger with one friend here and two friends here, one family here, as long as everyone are respecting certain conditions? Like, how does that look? Um, how how are the, the programs that the government is, is imposing on us, how how is it proof that they're not quite actually fixing any of the problems that mm -hmm. are causing this. And, and my favorite example is, you know, they just announced that there's a rent break for small businesses and they've announced that rent break before they announced the rent break for humans like people to live. But worse than that, there's no rent break for people living in long term care. <laughs> so you've got a loved one who's paying $7,000 a fucking month to stay in their bedroom and to hopefully not die. That seems like really fucked up. Yeah. You know, like no provinces are really talking about nationalizing these services. Quebec's premier city's not opposed to it, which was super shocking to me. But that's a whole other discussion. And rather than all of our economic 
forces looking at trying to solve this problem within long-term care, we are forced to hear, oh, they're going to open up this factory or this plant or whatever, even though we know that there are, are outbreaks at beef pack packing facilities, you know, Cargill and J, JB uh, meat packers in, in, uh, in, in Alberta, in poultry factories in, in British Columbia, that there's been someone who died who worked in um, Estelle Lauder factory in, in the GTA. Like, that is going to be what kills us, folks. <laughs> so we have to actually consider a new, we need a new economy. Right. The wartime economy didn't look like peacetime economy. The fucking pandemic economy is going to have to look different. And no one has the courage of our political leaders and, and very few journalists to even think outside of like responding to what our politicians are saying to, to give us a different vision of an economy that will let us ride this pandemic out safely fed and with shelter over our heads. And, and again, like thinking through those things these things that we're criticizing and you know the idea to wait <laughs> you know like maybe Nora you're 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 taking this too far you should give them a chance to to get to all of these things it's just you know it's it all of this is happening too quickly for us to wait to do some sort of critique um it it makes no sense that there hasn't been some sort of rent relief uh, delivered nationwide to us. It makes no sense um, that we haven't had some of these uh, shifts in the economy that we need and deserve. Like, I don't I don't know um, what's going on with the government uh, announcing orphan well cleanups. You know, like there's there's an ability to shift the economy or to shift the types of services that they're making so that they're centered on the on the people who are being affected the most. But quite frankly, that's just not what they're doing right now. And uh, they should be doing those things instead of considering opening up an economy. They don't need to to uh, spend money cleaning up orphan wells for big oil companies uh, instead of making sure that everybody can access the internet for free or making sure that everybody can contact each other for free. Um, these are decisions that they're making. And uh, those decisions that they're making uh, right now on, on those different services and who they're going to help first and most are going to have an impact on what it looks like if they open up the economy um, or when they open the, up the economy, or if they do it at all. Um, you know, we might be moving into a situation where, uh, you know, uh, this this virus uh, ends up making health look a lot more like what our grandparents and great-grandparents lived through, where it was just so much more common that you would get sick and die from an illness. And if that's, if that's the kind of world that we're li- moving into, generally, I mean... That's something that they may want to plan for, <laughs> you know, think about how we need to shift healthcare altogether because it's inadequate for us right now. It might be more inadequate for us in the future if this doesn't go away and if we can't um, access a vaccine. So what will we need? Like, that's the type of conversation I want to have. I don't I don't want to have a conversation about a passport system for being able to uh, interact with the economy. That's not that's not worth it to us as a society right now. I don't think. I think what's worth it is how we're going to shift to make sure we can take care of everyone um, in the way that we need to in order to to be able to live. <laughs>